This is KSQD Santa Cruz. From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. Bert Kearns returns to the show this week. Uh, we last spoke a few years ago when he co-authored with Jeff Abram the fascinating book, The Show Won't Go On, The Most Shocking, Bizarre, and Historic Deaths of Performers on Stage. And it sounds morbid, and it is a little bit, but nonetheless, it was a great read and, and very respectful to the artists whose death were discussed. And now Bert Kearns is back with a great new book from University Press of Kentucky, and it's a biography of an actor whose name you may not know, but whose work you've probably seen at some point in a long career in film and television. The book is Lawrence Tierney, Hollywood's real-life tough guy. Bert Kearns, welcome back to From the Bookshelf. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be back. Before we start um, talking about Lawrence Tierney, I want to know, uh, are you still collecting uh, deaths and have there been any interesting on-stage deaths since you wrote your book? I just actually added one to the website this morning. Oh. A, former in, a performer doing a holiday show in India died on stage. That was one of the, the nice things about the pandemic, because for about a year, people stopped dying on stage. And that's how <laughs> many things were getting better, because in 2022, it kicked up again. You yeah. know, a, a couple of rock and roll drummers and a, a couple of high-profile singers uh, died on stage in the past few months. But yeah, and that's also how I began my research for the Tierney book. It was while looking up performers who died on stage that I accidentally came upon a story about Lawrence Tierney. But he didn't die on stage. No, no, it just it came up. It was it was a, a little article on one of the, the newspaper sites, and it said Lawrence Tierney arrested for the 13th time. <laughs> said, hmm. it, it sounded pretty interesting for two reasons. Uh, one, I had met Lawrence Tierney, and I had I drank with Lawrence Tierney uh, at a bar in in Hollywood back in nineteen probably nineteen ninety two ninety three, shortly after Reservoir Dogs came out. It was one of these Hollywood bars that had been around since the nineteen thirties. It's called the Formosa Cafe, a Chinese restaurant on Santa Monica Boulevard, right next to Paramount Studios. Right, right, right near there. And so back in the forties, that's where the, the the movie actors and the stars would hang out. And in the early nineties. Some of those same characters were still there, but then you'd look in one booth and there's Quentin Tarantino and there's Tim Burton in another booth. Uh, I was sitting at the bar and there was an old guy with short sleeve shirt drinking some whiskey out of a bucket, out of a big glass. And how you doing? I'm Larry. Shook hands and we had a conversation. And all I remember is well, that's the guy from Reservoir Dogs, I think. And uh, no, no fights, no brawls, et cetera. He was, you know, very well behaved. He didn't slug you in the middle of the conversation. No. And now I feel kind of bad about that. <laughs> but when I looked up that story of uh, Tierney being arrested for the 13th time, <clears throat> I found out that, no, actually, it was about the 22nd time. Uh -huh. and I just started digging in and looking into Lawrence Tierney stories. And that's what basically was my pandemic project, sitting down and, and researching this. Yeah, I uh, had lunch at the Formosa Cafe with the cast of the Brady Bunch. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was invited to watch them. Um, film an episode and then afterwards we all went out to eat as i sat next to ann b davis see and now you know and it's it's still going strong they renovated it and it's still going strong you know but the tyranny story just for people to, to catch up tyranny was uh an, an irish guy from brooklyn who had done some stage work and modeling and he was basically discovered you know 
accidentally by a talent scout in New York, brought out to RKO Radio Pictures in 1943, became a just a stock player. They threw him in little roles here and there. Uh, and so for those two years, he basically didn't do a lot of work on screen, had little bit parts. He made some extra money by working construction, digging post holes, et cetera. And then they were going to they were going to get rid of his contract. They were going to close out his contract because they weren't making very good use of him. And he saw that an independent studio was doing a film on the career and life of the gangster John Dillinger, who was public enemy number one in the 1930s. So on his own, he walked over to this production company in an area called Poverty Row. These were the, the low budget, uh, small f- uh, film companies in Hollywood. He walked in. As legend has it, he stole a script off the secretary's desk, studied a scene, came back, got the role himself. RKO uh, Pictures rented him out for $100 a week. It was a three and a half week shoot. The film came out. Tierney became an overnight sensation. Overnight, this tall, handsome Irish actor was John Dillinger, as far as anyone knew and and, and as far as anyone cared. Um, Two weeks after the premiere of the film, he was arrested for being drunk. A week later, he was, arrested, he was arrested for being drunk and fighting. A week after that, he got 30 days in jail for being being drunk and fighting. Long story short, over the next seven years, he basically brawled and fought and drank away his career. And his career was basically over by about 1950, 1951. But it wasn't. There was always someone willing to hire Lawrence Tierney, give him another chance because he was a great guy when he wasn't drinking. When the heat got too heavy in L.A., he escaped to New York. When he was banned from every bar on Third Avenue in New York, he'd go to Europe. He kept going and he'd find jobs in construction. He'd find jobs as a bartender, but he'd always find work. And then, unbelievably, in the 1970s, late 1970s, he was a different man by then. He was an alcoholic. He was he was bald. He was craggy, no longer handsome. He looked very much like, as um, Tim Roth's character called him in Reservoir Dogs, the thing, just a big, scary, bald guy. <laughs> he began a comeback in film again as an entirely different actor in films like Arthur, in films like Pritzi's Honor. And he began an entirely new second career in Hollywood where he met a lot of young folks who were hanging out in places like the Formosa Cafe and a place called Bordner's, et cetera. And next thing you know, he's hanging out with these young guys. They're saying, wow, it's Lawrence Tierney. It's the real deal from old Hollywood. I can't believe he's sleeping on my couch. I can't believe he won't leave. I can't believe he's been here for for three months. He won't leave my couch. Um, And he wound up inspiring a lot of people who are today doing very well in Hollywood. And that's people that I spoke to for this book. I, I, I was a big fan of Hill Street Blues. And every episode of Hill Street Blues kind of begins the exact same way with the exact same people, except the very last episode. And I remember watching that last episode because I was, as I said, uh, an admirer of the program. And the very first thing you see in the last episode is Lawrence Tierney. And the very last words you hear and the last person you see in the final episode, in the final scene of the series, is Lawrence Tierney. You know, what what an honor it it was to, to give him that. Yeah, and, and uh, I was in a, he was great in it, and he's always—I I always thought he was great in the movie uh, that I remember uh, first seeing him in, which is called Step by Step. Mm-hmm. Uh, he plays almost the first half of the picture virtually naked. 
he, put, he puts on this little bathing suit. It looks like Tarzan. I mean, he's got an incredible physique. Right. And for at least the first half of the picture, he's running around in this tiny bathing suit. Right. That was all shot in Malibu. He's running around being chased by, by foreign agents or something. Yeah. 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 And I, I thought he was a fine actor. And I didn't know about all of his troubles until I read your book. And, and uh, he did a lot of great television work. He was kind of around for that golden age of television uh, in the nineteen early nineteen fifties. That's one, yeah. That's one of the things that sort of saved his career. You know, by the by the time Hollywood had sort of had enough of him, I think it was nineteen fifty two. You know, again, his career was at, at at a low ebb. He was picking up you know roles in supporting parts. He got a role in the movie The Greatest Show on Earth, directed right. by Cecil B. DeMille. Best picture Cecil, of the year. Yeah, Cecil B. DeMille took a liking to him, and. You know, and they, and they got along really well. And there was one scene where they had to get nine people into one shot. And Cecil B. DeMille was figuring out how to do this. And Tierney said, oh, can I interrupt? Let me tell you how to do it. And Cecil B. DeMille wasn't offended, but said, hey, you're right. Great. And he got the, Tierney held to get the shot and they became good friends. And DeMille said to him, you know what? I'm going to take care of you. You're going to get a three picture deal with Paramount. We've already got we've got you lined up for other films because you're great. And then three weeks later. Tierney was arrested for a brawl and fighting, and that deal went out the window. And that was always the story, you know, one step forward, two steps backwards. And then when then TV came along, and in the 60s, he did a lot of guest shots and dramas. But I think his best work was in television in the 1980s, where he really was able – he was basically on every drama, uh, you know, one-hour drama on, in, in primetime in the 80s, from, you know, L.A. Law to, to Hill Street Blues – uh, he was in ER in, in, in the nineties, but he also did comedy. He was in that, that show with Dabney Coleman slap Maxwell. He was, he was in tales from the dark side playing an exorcist. And his wife was played by Phyllis Diller and they were comic exorcists. And he's really funny. That was the thing. Tierney was a really funny guy and he was a very good actor. Yeah. Oh, well, I uh, remember him as a psychotic uh, elevator operator in the Naked City. That was one of my favorite shows. Right. Right. <laughs> he also was he also was in um, Man with a Camera. It was Charles Bronson's, Charles Bronson's show. series. Yeah. And, and he played a, uh, a, a a carnival vendor who was actually a, a killer. And they had a great fight scene. And I, I, I saw it. I said that was must have been what it was like to be in a bar and watch Lawrence Tierney fight because he had this great fight with C with Charles Bronson. <laughs> so uh, do you think that if uh if it if it had happened today or if circumstances then were different that Lawrence Tierney could have sought treatment is there it, was was he misunderstood i mean is there was there something wrong with him there was something wrong with him i mean today he you know we might say that he's bipolar you know he had to drink he had to fight and he was let down every step of the way by just about every, you know, important force in his life. The studios let him down by either, you know, continuing to hire him and saying, Here, here's a cure. Uh, instead of him playing a bad guy, we're going to have him play a good guy in the next movie. So maybe he'll be a good guy off screen. The, the, the newspapers, the columnists, the gossips, and even the reporters got a big kick out of him. You know, every time he was arrested, you know, they, they, they loved to write. They always wrote. Dillinger arrested again, Lawrence Tierney, Dillinger, you know, it, it, and then at, at the same time, the legal system, the justice system let him down. That story that I found where he had been arrested for the 13th time, this had happened 
three weeks after uh, police got a call to a church in Santa Monica, California. It was actually the church that the movie uh, Going My Way was was based on with Bing Crosby and Barry Fitzgerald. Uh, they got the report that what they called in those days a bum, a barefoot bum was outside causing trouble. Police arrived. The guy ran into the church, ran up to the altar and started screaming for sanctuary. Uh, the, the actor Robert Walker had died. From his, his doctors had administered some anti-alcohol uh, drugs and had killed him shortly before that. This guy was screaming, they're going to kill me like they killed Robert Walker. Well, it, was, it was tyranny. And he was in a psychotic state. They wound up putting him in a makeshift tr- straitjacket and taking him away. He wound up in, in a medical facility. They didn't charge him. And all the columnists said, hey, there you go. He deserved it. That's the end of Lawrence Tierney. We're never going to hear from this guy again. It's good he didn't hurt someone else. And, you know, good you know, good riddance. Well, that's the end of the Lawrence Tierney story. Well, three weeks later, uh, a barefoot guy shows up in a bar offering to whip anybody in the house. And he's back in court. And the judge says, okay, Mr. Tierney, this is the 13th time you've been before me. We we can't go on with this any longer. This is time for you to to go to jail. I'm going to have to really put you in jail and have you have you learn a lesson. But if you promise never to drink again, I'll let you off with a fine. How's that? Tierney's like, I promise I'll ne- I'll never drink again, never touch a drop again. <laughs> and then of course they let him go, and three weeks later he's arrested again. And he made many cries for help. When he was interviewed, he'd say, "Look, I, I try. I, I try Alcoholics Anonymous." I, I, I've tried to stop, but I'm, I'm a prisoner to it. I, I can't, I can't stop. It's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm addicted to this. And to a person and to a writer and to anything that you saw at the time, they'd say, if only he was strong. Well, if he wasn't so weak, he'd be able to kick this. You know, it just. So yes, I think today, you know, people would realize it's. You know, he, he they, they would realize that he would need, you know, some sort of medication or some sort of help. Well, uh, in your book, you talk about many of these writers, but particularly Jimmy Fiddler, who was a famous gossip yeah. columnist of his day. And it's as if Jimmy Fiddler had something invested in bringing down Lawrence Tierney. He he had something invested in bringing him down, but also he was the only one who kept sending out the warning signs throughout. You had Sheila Graham and Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons, who all, you know, they'd say, oh, Larry's being a good boy. Oh, he's being a bad boy. Oh, that Larry, you know, just give him a, give him a break. Fiddler was the one who would, you could, you could, when you read his columns, you could just read his frustration saying, I've said it again. I'll say it again. He, this man is incorrigible. He should be in a hospital. He, his his family, I don't feel sorry for his family anymore. They should be institutionalizing him. He's going to hurt someone. So, uh, so yeah, he, he really was invested for another reason. Uh, Tierney's <laughs> kind of funny. Tierney's hero was Errol Flynn. And Tierney had gotten into a couple of Hollywood brawls uh, defending the honor of Errol Flynn. Well, back in, I believe it was around 1940, before Tierney came to Hollywood, uh, Jimmy Fiddler went to Washington and he testified uh, in a congressional hearing about Hollywood and how the Hollywood studios were trying to pay him for good re- to give good reviews, et cetera. And Errol Flynn confronted him at the Macambo, a famous club in the Sunset Strip, and lifted him up by his collar and slapped him in the face uh, in front of everyone at the, at the club. And uh, Jimmy Fiddler's wife came to his aid by stabbing Errol Flynn in the ear with a dessert fork. And so there was a, a huge brawl. And so I think that Jimmy uh, 
Fiddler was traumatized by that incident as well. Now, um, we're talking with Bert Kearns, and uh, he's just written a fabulously interesting book called Lawrence Tierney, Hollywood's Real Life Tough Guy. And this is from the bookshelf, and I'm Gary Shapiro. Um, Lawrence Tierney's brothers also became actors. Uh, he kind of opened the door for them to become stars. Yeah, Larry, Lawrence uh, came to came to Hollywood in '43, and about 1947, he had a younger brother named Gerard, and Gerard was in the Navy. Uh, Larry had a had some injuries which didn't allow him to serve. Uh, in World War II, he kind of resented his younger brother because of that. But his his brother came to Hollywood to visit him when he was on the set of the movie um, Born to Kill. And while he was there, one of the produ- Larry introduced him to one of the producers, and Gerard got a screen test. And next thing you know, Gerard's in the film business. Uh, the people that Gerard were, was was working for said, you know, you might not want to call yourself Gerard Tierney because your brother has a bit of a reputation here. So his first film, he was, um, it was uh, Gerard. It wasn't Scott Brady, but eventually it became Scott Brady. That was that he became famous as Scott Brady and had a very long career up until he died early. He died young at the age of sixty, but he had a career uh, in film, on Broadway, and in television. Uh, and then they had a he had a, a third brother named Eddie, who when he got out of uh, the army from serving Korea. He came to Hollywood and he had a brief film career. He wasn't as invested in Hollywood as his older brothers were, but Larry helped him get in and then cast him as his younger brother in the film, The Hoodlum. Hmm. So he always, you know, he helped his brothers. His brothers always gave him credit for helping them, but there was a great, uh, they had great difficulties. And in fact, he was estranged from both his brothers for about the last 20 years of their lives. Really? So they weren't close. No, they they blamed Larry for the death of their mother. Their their mother died in 1960. She uh, was found uh, in in her apartment dead of a heart attack. They found some pills uh, next to the next to the bed. So the early newspaper accounts said it may have been a suicide. The family decided no. You know she she drank too much. She took pills to go to sleep. But she was very very disturbed by the trouble that that Lawrence had caused and. The, the brothers blamed him for their mother's death, and he blamed himself as well. I've talked to people that he lived with uh, in the later part of his life, and that's what he talked about. He said they never never talked about other women, but always talked about his mother. And what about uh, his personal life uh, as a husband or father? Well, the thing the thing with Tierney was he was quite charming to women. Uh, he could speak several languages. He knew poetry. He could re- recite Shakespeare. Uh, he was a big, scary-looking man, but very tender. One one thing I always point out is that he beat up a lot of men, but as far as we know, really, he never put his hand, never laid a hand on, on a woman. He knocked down a bunch of doors to get into their apartments and, and cause trouble, but he was very courtly with women. And because of that, the women that he had dated and came close to marrying included socialites. Uh, he had a, a long affair with Gloria Vanderbilt, Shelley Winters, uh, Betsy von Furstenberg. Uh, but no, he never settled down with anyone. He, there was one woman that he, he impregnated. She had his daughter. He wanted nothing to do with, with that. And it turned out that his younger brother, Ed, married her. So Tierney's daughter, you know, grew up as the daughter of his brother 
But did she know that, did she ever know that Lawrence Tierney was her father? Uh, she found out later in life, yeah, and they had a, a they had a, a friendly, cordial relationship uh, later in life. I found out, you know, I spoke uh, after writing the book. Uh, I found I finally got in touch with his, I guess, well, I, it's, it's his sister-in-law as well as you know, the mother of his of his child and and her son. And he said that you know she still cared. She cared for Larry at the end when when he was dying. She came back into his life and, and had really cared for him the whole time. Hmm. Yeah, so uh, uh, Lawrence Tierney was the the longest living member of his family, despite all of his troubles. That was the thing. Yeah, I mean, both his brothers died in the early 1980s. Uh, Ed died uh, at about the age of 54, uh, and then Scott Brady uh, died in in 85, and uh, he was 60 years old. He had just been in the film Gremlins. He was one of the stars of the China Syndrome. So his his career had 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 gone, and right around that time. Uh, Lawrence Tierney returned from New York to Hollywood and really revitalized his, his career around the time that Scott Brady died and began to get roles that perhaps Scott Brady would have gotten had he not. He had emphysema and and um, and, and other lung ailments. So, you know, had he been able to keep working, he may have gotten the roles that, that Larry wound up taking. Well, I guess the movie that most uh, people today would know Lawrence Tierney for is Reservoir Dogs, the first Quentin Tarantino feature, yeah, and a, a precursor to uh, Pulp Fiction. It's not as good as Pulp Fiction, but I don't think he would have made Pulp Fiction if he hadn't made Reservoir Dogs first. Reservoir no. Dogs is a, is a great movie. Yeah, I love it, and it's it's a bizarre movie because it's 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 got a lot of dialogue. Yeah, it's probably got more dialogue than the average movie, and uh, and Lawrence Tierney is amazing in it. And he's in it a lot. I mean, he's not, I don't know. Every, every, it's an ensemble piece, so you can't really say anybody is the star of it. Maybe, maybe, uh, the biggest name at Harvey Keitel was yeah, Harvey Keitel. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but Harvey Keitel isn't in it any more than any of the other actors are. Uh, but how did it come about that he ended up in Reservoir Dogs and, and what was his relationship like with Quentin Tarantino? Getting back to the story of the Formosa. Yeah. Uh, another one of those bars I mentioned was a place called Bordner's. This is a place it still exists. It's it's off Hollywood Boulevard, a few blocks from the Chinese theater. Uh, it's an old dive bar. And that's where Lawrence Tierney hung around in the 1940s. Well, in 1985, a bunch of young would-be film directors and writers were had been to the Chinese theater to see Stephen King's Silver Bullet, a werewolf film. That Lawrence Tierney was in. He had a role, and he played a bartender who I think gets killed by the werewolf in, in the in the film. They're sitting uh, at their table at Bordner's, and who walks in? But Lawrence Tierney. This is the guy they just saw in the film. Well, they went over to Tierney. Next thing you know, he's sitting at their table. Next thing you know, he's drinking with them. Next thing you know, he's invited them to his to his apartment. And next thing you know, they're uh, you know he's sleeping on their couches. So he befriended <laughs> these young guys. These guys happened. To be part of the same circle, uh, there was a screenwriter named uh, C. Courtney Joyner, a director named Jeff Burr. They wound up making a lot, making a lot of films together and apart. Uh, they were part of the same group that Quentin Tarantino was involved in. They had the same management. Uh, one day, Tarantino showed Courtney Joyner a script that he had written. Uh, he, you know, he had written a script. He showed it to. He said, "I'm going to direct this script. This is the script that I'm going to direct." And Courtney looks at it, and at the top of the script. Tarantino, before the action started, had written the names of about eight different 
people that he dedicated the script to filmmakers, uh, filmmakers and, and actors that he looked up to. And among them was Lawrence Tierney. And Courtney so this said, is the oh. script to Reservoir Dogs, you're saying? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and Courtney said, you, you've, you've dedicated this to Lawrence Tierney? And he, he said, yeah, I mean, he was the toughest, baddest man on, on, on screen. You know, he died in a knife fight in a whorehouse down in Mexico. And Courtney said, no, he didn't. He lives behind the library. I see him twice a week. Well, <laughs> sure enough, uh, they meet at a party and Tarantino hires Lawrence Tierney for Reservoir Dogs. Um, before he had hired Tierney for Reservoir Dogs, he, his producer, Lawrence Bender, made some calls to people that had worked with Larry. And they said, well, look, if you have Larry Lawrence Tierney working for you, you're going to need to know a few things. He's going to need a minder. He manages to wander off. He'll be in the middle of shooting a scene. He'll, he'll talk to someone and go out and, and go off to lunch with somebody in the middle of the, the thing. He's not going to understand it. He's going to be some trouble. So you really need to, you know, have a Lawrence Tierney minder on hand. And they said, nah, we'll, don't worry. We'll, we're fine. We'll take care of it. Well, the first week of filming Reservoir Dogs, Lawrence Tierney, had a real hard time with Tarantino's script. He didn't get the poetry of it. He didn't like the jokes that that Tarantino had written. He kept getting distracted. He was really causing a lot of trouble through for Tierney's for Tarantino's first week as as a director. This is this meant a lot to Tarantino. He had to prove himself in front of the crew, and he had to you know this was a, a big deal for him. And Tierney was giving him a lot of trouble. It was the last day of the first week of shooting. They had one more shot to do. And it was the, the pancake house scene, which, which was actually the opening scene in, in the film. And Tarantino was trying to explain to, to, to Tierney where he needed to stand. And, and Tierney wasn't paying attention. So Tarantino made the mistake, from what I'm talking to the witnesses there, of putting his hands on him. And physically trying to move him. And Tierney said, get your hands off me. And the next thing you know, he pushes Tarantino. There's a shoving match. Fists are flying. And Taran- and they, they're separated. And Tarantino says, you're fired. Tarantino walks one way. Larry walks the other way. Uh, as far as the, the, the myth of it goes, the, the, everybody applauded. Yeah, there you go, Tar- Quentin. Great. You know, got rid of that, that troublemaker. Uh, Lawrence Bender, the producer, and Harvey Keitel, who was another producer of the film, said, uh, you can't fire this guy. We don't have a budget to reshoot. We've been shooting all the scenes. We, we, we don't have a, the budget to reshoot this. You've got to hire him back. Uh, as the, the story goes, he hired him back within 20 minutes, and everybody was friends. The real story was that Lawrence Tierney went back to his apartment on Hollywood Boulevard in a rage. He could not believe what, what had happened, and he was really angry. So he went to Bordner's and he went to Bordner's and he got really drunk. And then he punched out the, the bouncer and he broke the window in the door, went back to his apartment, had a friend over, continued to drink, continued to drink. Uh, his nephew, Michael Tierney, someone that many people call St. Michael. He was the, the son of Ed Tierney, who sort of became his uncle's um guardian and took care of him through the last 15 20 years of his life he showed up at the apartment to try to calm larry down sat with him and then at one point larry took out a 357 magnum a dirty harry sort of gun a dirty larry gun and started shooting at michael the bullet went through the wall into the neighboring apartment michael ran down to the down to the street ran around the corner called the police 
did something very smart, which saved um, Tierney's life probably and saved uh, Quentin Tarantino's shooting schedule. He he called the police that there's been an accident. He didn't say there's a man with a gun and shooting, you know, shooting up the apartment. Police came. They took Lawrence Tierney away. They had him in jail that weekend. And then Courtney Joyner and the other ones all got together and said, we got to get him out of jail. We can't tell Quentin. This is going to ruin the surety bond. This is going to ruin the, for everything of the film. We got to get him out of jail. We can't let Quentin know about this. And they did a, a kind of a secret agent operation. Uh, the charge was originally going to be attempted murder. It, the charge was downgraded to you know, shooting a gun in an occupied dwelling. They got Larry out. He was able to complete the film under a, a form of house arrest. And and then he served some time in a halfway house in the Valley uh, with like, I understand he was you know with 20 year olds and, you know, all youngsters. And there was, you know, 70 year old Larry causing trouble with all the young kids again. <laughs> so. So uh, do you think that Quentin Tarantino was thinking, oh, you know, uh, Lawrence Tierney will be so grateful that I've, cast him in this movie and given him this marvelous part and then was put off by the fact that Lawrence Tierney showed zero gratitude for such a thing. Yeah, he, he, uh, most definitely. He also just, I mean, being inexperienced, a guy with, with like Tarantino, who's, you know, he's very confident, very confident young guy, but this was his first film and he just didn't know how to handle him really. I think that was the problem when Tierney uh, flubbed a line, he would, Blame the other actors. You know, Michael Madsen, who I spoke to, who was, who was in Reservoir Dogs, said there was one scene where Tierney's giving out all the gang members, all the, all the, the members of this group in this heist were given colors for names. And he's, it's the famous scene about Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? And he kept messing it up and he blamed Michael Madsen for fidgeting while he was doing it. And they eventually had to move everybody out and let, let him just, just Quentin and, and Tarantino, uh, Quentin and Tierney do it themselves. But, uh, Madsen said, you know, yeah, he realized that, that Larry was getting, you know, got a bit flustered and he had to be handled with a bit more care than they knew how to handle him with. And that was the problem. He, at this point in his life, by, the, by about, you know, 1990, all these young guys wanted to work with Lawrence Tierney, the, the, the showrunner for Star Trek, uh, the Deep Space Nine, wanted to work with Lawrence Tierney, the, the showrunner from The Simpsons brought Lawrence Tierney in and Tierney right. wreaked havoc doing a role in the Simpsons. Uh, he wanted him to How hard. Could it be? You just come in and read a thing, right? He had to come in. It was a, it was a, it was a, an episode where Bart is arrested for shoplifting. Tierney is, is the security guy at the store who, who brings Bart in. Uh, of course he gets Tierney gets there. They give him the script. He, he, he hits on the, the young women who are the production assistants to begin with. <laughs> then he, doesn't get the jokes, doesn't understand what he's, he refuses to read them because he doesn't get the jokes. Then he says, I'm going to do this in a Southern accent. And they're like, no, we want you to be the guy from Reservoir Dogs. We want you to be Joe Cabot. And wreaked all kinds of havoc. Got, they got through it. And, you know, 25 years later, Josh Weinstein, the, the showrunner at the time, is still talking about the best guest reader we ever had with Lawrence Tierney. We'll never forget what Lawrence Tierney did. Um, <laughs> and that, that happened, you know, that happened on the Star Trek uh, set as well, where he, could, you know, he had to actually had just had a stroke and he, he couldn't read the lines. And uh, Alexander Siddig, who was one of the actors who was directing for the first time, wound up having to, he actually was, 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 was pretty smart. He got underneath the desk and fed Tierney his lines as, you know, to get through the scenes and stuff. But he was trouble, but they all felt it was worth it because they got to work with the real deal. They all got to work with Lawrence Tierney. 
Even Seinfeld, Seinfeld was the was the big one. Oh yeah, what was what was his role in Seinfeld? Seinfeld, he had the role of the father of Elaine, Julia Louis Louis Dreyfus's father. He played a guy named Alton Bennis, who was a war hero and author. An author. And it was an episode called The Jacket, and he goes out to dinner with Jerry and Costanza and really intimidates them, really just frightens them. Uh, of course, from what I hear from the people that that Tierney was was with at the time, he didn't think so. he didn't get what this Steinfeld was. This is this isn't funny. <laughs> what 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 is what's I don't get it. He didn't get any of the jokes, et cetera. But he played it deadpan, and he was hilarious. They said this guy is great. We have to make him a regular. So now he had a chance. He was going to be a recurring character on Seinfeld because they thought he was so funny and worked so well against um, Jason Alexander and Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, until they were setting up another shot and they were in the Seinfeld apartment set. And they're all on one side of the apartment and Tierney's standing by in the kitchen area. And Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Alexander noticed that Tierney walks over to the butcher block where they have actual knives and he pulls out a large knife and puts it under his jacket. And they all look at each other and they're like, he just, he just stole it. What's going on with that? And I'm not going to say anything. And, you know, nobody says anything. Jerry Seinfeld sees it. He walks over. Hey, Larry, what's with the knife? And Tierney looks around. He's embarrassed and uh, wants to make a joke of it. So he pulls a knife out of his jacket and says, well, I guess this is just in case I had to stab you in the heart. And then he takes the knife and imitating the sound from the movie Psycho, starts stabbing at Jerry Seinfeld while everyone looks on in horror. And they said, get this guy out of here. He's not, he's not coming <laughs> back. Well, yeah. So he was a kind of a kleptomaniac. He enjoyed stealing. I mean, he didn't need to steal, but he, uh, he enjoyed stealing. At one point in his life, it seems that being called Dillinger all the time kind of rubbed off on him. And the fact that he he had to live rough. I mean, they, there was a times in New York when he was living in abandoned buildings. He's working as in construction. He's working in uh, as as a bartender, and he's living in flop houses. And he he just started picking up this habit of, of kleptomania. He had he had two very disturbing habits that he did in front of a lot of his friends. One of them was kleptomania. He'd, he'd be in a diner and he he would steal the silverware and just walk out with it. He just loved the thrill of that. Uh, and the other was public urination. He <laughs> did that a lot. It was immortalized in a in a an essay by uh, Eddie Muller, the czar of noir, uh, about an, an episode that took place at the Egyptian theater, where it was a tribute to Robert Wise, the director of Born to Kill. Uh, Tierney showed up at this tribute uninvited, raised, you know, Big well, Lawrence Tierney's here. He was this was in 1999. This is he was almost 80 years old. This was really his last public appearance. And he sat in the back row of the theater uh before the screening. There was a QA with uh Robert Wise. Tierney heckled Wise from his seat. And then once the movie started, he turned to Eddie Muller, who was sitting with him, and said, Get me a cup. And Eddie went over to the concession stand and got him a a Prince of Egypt cup, one of those big, you know, souvenir uh, Coca-Cola things because the Prince of Egypt had just played there. Whereupon Lawrence Tierney stood up in the back row, dropped his pants and urinated into the cup in front of uh, 
unfortunately, a, uh, a woman in the row in front of him uh, turned her head to see what was going on. And he said, and then he said something to the effect of, you've never seen one of these before. <laughs> and so that, that was, you know, one of the, the great um, outrageous Lawrence Tierney stories until I talked to a bunch of his friends and found about four or five other incidents that were quite similar. He, you know, he had prostate issues. He had, he had troubles, but then again, it also was part of the fact that he, he didn't care. He kind of began to live outside society. You know, one of the, the more tragic instances was the fact that the movie Joe, John Avildsen's film uh, about the, the 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 killer, you know, redneck conservative killer from about 1970. Tierney was originally cast in that role. Avildsen wanted Peter Boyle. This is the movie that wound up making Peter Boyle a star. But Peter Boyle was too young for the role. He didn't fit. And they hired Lawrence Tierney. And Tierney was going to um, play Joe until they did the wardrobe fitting when he it, it was it was in a department store and again i've gotten two stories either he urinated onto a production assistant or on the escalator and they <laughs> had to get rid of him <laughs> not funny <laughs> lost a job through urination yeah no i mean i believe the oh, yeah. theater does have restrooms if i'm not mistaken so he could have gotten up and gone to the restroom rather he than could have, no but as jeff burr said he said he could walk into a men's room with 12 vacant urinals and he'll just walk right out to the exit door and do it out on the sidewalk. <laughs> that was, you know, that was part of, you know, he was Mark, he wild was man. Yeah. Um, you were making me think when you were talking about the knife incident on Seinfeld um, about a movie called the prowler. I'm not a big fan of, uh, of slasher movies, but the prowler is a kind of an unusual one that he made. Yeah. And the prowler actually became, sort of the, the the template for for slasher movies you know in in the future that was a film where he, he had a small role in it that was that was the the film where it was there was a, a world war ii incident and the soldier came back and was killing you know young people of course with a pitchfork pardon me with a pitchfork the pitchfork yeah and he had a a role in it and farley granger also had had a role they were the two oh. name actors in it so when you saw the the ads in the paper for the drive-in where it was playing, it was like Lawrence Tierney and Farley Granger in The Prowler. And you thought you were seeing some, you know, old 1940s film. <laughs> and and that, was, that was another thing why Tierney uh, was significant. I mean, this, this winds up being, you know, it, it stretches from the 1940s into the 21st century. This really goes over seven decades. And it really is an untold story of the underside of Hollywood, an alternative history of Hollywood. And the, the reason that Tierney is not just another, you know, Hollywood Babylon, you know, from the fame to the gutter story is, number one, that he really was a really, really good actor. You know, he was typecast as the bad guy because he was so good in films like Born to Kill and The Devil Thumbs a Ride as that film noir bad guy. But he also had a lot of range. He never made it to Broadway, but he did a lot of Broadway dramas uh, out in the hinterlands, he he did a streetcar named Desire, uh, and he was he was reviewed favorably compared to Marlon Brando. He did the Petrified Forest in the role of Duke Mantee that was originated on Broadway by Hum Humphrey Bogart, and he got great reviews for that. He was compared to Clark Gable on on stage and Spencer Tracy. Um, and then when he made his comeback, it wasn't just that he was in a lot of films like The Prowler, which wound up being very culturally significant. He was in films 
Andy Warhol's bad. John Cassavetes had him in Gloria. John Euston had him in Pritzi's Honor with Jack Nicholson. He was in John Sayles' City of Hope. Oliver Stone cast him in Natural Born Killers. He didn't make it past rehearsals because he got in a fight with Woody Harrelson, but he was but. cast in that. <laughs> and so he, he worked with really, you know, he worked with Larry David, you know, David Milch at, at, at Hill Street. He worked with very significant people in very culturally significant films. You know, his, his big comeback was in Arthur. He had a scene uh, with, with Dudley Moore and Liza Minnelli and Arthur. And it's the scene in a diner where Arthur is trying to propose to Liza Minnelli. And in this case, Tierney wasn't playing the drunk. Arthur was the drunk. You know, Dudley Moore was the drunk and Tierney was the guy trying to get a role, the role that he ordered. And he kept breaking up this, breaking up the, the would-be proposal and got lots of laughs. And that sort of brought him back. It's a, it's, it really is an interesting um, story and a, and a very well-written book, Bert Kearns, uh, Lawrence Tierney, Hollywood's real-life tough guy. Now, um, you've done a lot of work in uh, television and film production and so on. And uh, you've sort of found, I mean, you always write respectfully about the people that you write about, but there's a certain um, uh, tabloid sense of, of, uh, of the stuff that you go after. What is it about that that interests you or that interests people in general? Do you have a theory? Sort of affixed with the tabloid label wherever I go. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the fact that I wrote a book that was published in 1999 called Tabloid Baby. And that was was the story of my adventures uh, during the height of the tabloid television era in the late 1980s and 1990s. And in the decades since, since 1999, I've sort of been a, a voice in the wilderness defending tabloid as a genre, as it's got taken so many hits over the years. Um, one of the reasons is, to me, good tabloid writing and good tabloid is writing that is short, it's sharp. It's concise. It's not ostentatious. There's no filler words, no 25 cent words in there. And it's written dramatically without having to add any fiction to it. Um, good tabloid also, to me, has a sense of humor and it has a morality to it. You don't pick on the little guy. You don't kick on kick someone when they're down. You tweak the pompous and you irritate the powerful people and you leave the reader with you know, a smile or perhaps a, you know, a chill when they, when they read what, what you've written there, but it's written so that an average reader can read it and understand it and get it and take something away from it. I mean, people, they call it punchy. They call it hard boiled. They call it sensational. Um, the more I think of it, my affinity really goes back to the fact that I spent 15 years writing for local and national television news. And that's where you've got 20 seconds to tell a story. 45 seconds is an eternity. But you've got 20 seconds often on deadline to tell a story, to get the impact, hit the viewer, and get the viewer to come back or keep watching. And so that's basically tabloid to me. Some of my favorite writers are tabloid writers. And, you know, I, I think when it's done correctly, it's great. It's literature for everyone. And the Lawrence Tierney book, I believe the Lawrence Tierney story is tailor-made for uh, the tabloid style because his is a tale told in headlines, really, just <laughs> one headline after another for 60 years. Uh, and, and why do you think it has a, uh, a lasting appeal to, uh, to people? 
because it's something that you can, I mean, it goes back to, you know, to the newspapers. It goes back to the fact that, you know, the New York Times, the broadsheets are the big papers that you have, you have to sit and spend some time with your coffee over. The tabloids are one that you can read with one hand, you fold it over and you read it on the subway and you get the story and it, it, it's, it's quick. It's, it's sharp. It's, it's very descriptive. And you and it might get you angry when when you read it. You're not. It's not always so nuanced uh, when you're reading a, a, a tabloid story. But all the facts are. It's just the facts, ma'am, and it's easy to digest and easy to talk about when you leave. I was basically kidnapped in 1989 by Rupert Murdoch's Australians on a show called A Current Affair, and this was ta- the, sort of the birth yeah. of tabloid television. And the difference then was that you could really find any story you wanted and 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 cover it and, and this was before the internet i would i was the managing editor at a current affair and i would go through small town papers every you know hundreds of small town papers looking for stories and we'd start to see we'd start to see patterns hey here here's a minister who ran away with a church organist and burned the church the church down <laughs> in mississippi here's the same thing happening in indiana wait, here's a teacher having an affair with her student. Here's a, a, a wife killing her husband. And so we really began to, you know, cover America that way and sort of show the, the underside of America. Uh, and that's why people started watching, you know, that, that sort of television for a while until network news kind of co-opted it. Those same stories well, line and 48 hours and things like that. But anyway, I've always, you know, gone for those stories that really have that, that I, that I'm interested in. Uh sometimes to my detriment, my son would say, Dad, why don't you, you know, do a documentary on somebody that people have heard of? And it's like, but no, it's not, it's not that interesting, you know? Yeah. And, and that's why, you know, the, the tyranny story, I I had that that connection where I you know I'd worked at the same studio he did and I and I met him that time and and then just really just got into this incredible story that I was more amazed when I first would go to publishers and go and go to agents and they say, well, who's Lawrence Tierney? Who cares? You know, until I found the, you know, this is one, one agent, uh, Lee Sobel, who said, you've got to want to do a book on Lawrence Tierney. I've been trying to get Courtney Joyner to do one for five years. This is terrific. And yeah. uh, he got it, you know, and, and he, when you get somebody that gets it, that, that helps a lot. Well, it's a really good book and uh, I recommend it. And the book is Lawrence Tierney, Hollywood's real life tough guy. And the author and my guest, Bert Kearns. Bert, thanks so much for hanging out with us on From the Bookshelf. It's a nice talking hey, to you. Hey, pleasure. Thanks a lot. Joining me now is artist Stan Welsh. And he is he's shown internationally. He is an educator. And uh, he's got a show that is coming up at the Minnow Arts Gallery in downtown Santa Cruz that opens March 3rd. He's a sculptor, a printmaker, all, all kinds of things, and I'm excited to have him here. Stan, welcome to From the Bookshelf. Hey, thank you, Gary. So, Stan Welsh, what uh, I follow you on Instagram, and I know you do both prints and ceramics lately. What will you be showing at the Minnow Arts Gallery? It'll be a combination of the prints, the ceramic sculpture, as well as mixed media sculpture, including some uh, photographs. Can you... Um, Enlighten us a little bit about how that goes together. You have a, a, a photograph with a piece of sculpture attached to it? Yeah, so I'm working with the, the figure, and the figures are relatively small, about 18 inches tall. And uh, I'm mounting large format photographs of the ocean. 
and then I'm placing those figures uh, on metal shelves uh, in front of the photographs in combination with plywood panels and a number of other things, but basically mixed media. But the idea is to contextualize that figure and put it into a situation where it has a sense of vulnerability. It feels like it's in a big space, sort of moving through that space. And the, the, the theme of the work generally is migration, the idea of human migration. Uh, what, what is it? Does your show have a title at the Minnow Arts Gallery? Not yet. Uh, I, it's funny. I'm thinking about that right now, Gary. Um, but, but a working title has been C, C, C. That's S E E S E A S I. That sounds good. That sounds good. Now, uh, Stan Walsh, I've been following your work for a long time. I know you were originally based in the Bay Area, but now you live in Santa Cruz. You've been in Santa Cruz for 20 years or so. That's correct. And you've retired now from your teaching? Five years from San Jose State University. Um, and and so uh, a lot more time in your studio now. A lot more time in the studio and really enjoying that. So tell me a little bit about your, your creative process. How do you, uh, you, you, you've just described how you have a photograph with a metal shelf and a figure in front of it. How do you conceptualize this? Do you know what it's going to look like before you make it? Or are you feeling your way along as you go? Okay. So the whole thing sort of started out with this idea of, of being in the water. I surf, I've been surfing all my life. And this idea of looking out at the ocean, looking out at these giant spaces. And, 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 and so part of the original part of the process was like, I think I'm just going to photograph these huge, beautiful spaces, these oceanscapes, nothing in them, no figures, no surfers, no, just the ocean. And uh, I started taking those photographs and I really enjoyed doing it. I loved the way they looked. And uh, then I started, I said, okay, now I'm ready to go and placing these figures in front of these photographs. Uh, you know, total experiment. I wasn't sure how it was going to work. But when I blew those things up to like three by four feet and I placed that small figure in front of those photographs, it really did take on a, a you know, a feeling of sort of big space, uh, vulnerability, uh, image moving through that space. And so I started building these, uh, you know, these forms using the idea of human migration as a metaphor for one's passage through life. You know, I'm just creating these figures that are carrying loads and burdens as they move forward and bend under the weight. And, you know, I'm also thinking of those as human, you know, just just a metaphor for people passing through life. You know, we're all just sort of migrating through this this uh, moment on this planet. And uh, so it, it sort of opened up to a much more general sort of idea of migration. And so I went about making the figures and I went about assembling the component parts. And I ended up really just feeling like it was a strong uh, statement, strong image, strong composition. And more recently, um, those figurative images have come off uh, the wall from in front of those waterscapes uh, or landscapes. And they've just become these standing figures now that are no longer being contextualized into this this uh, landscape kind of situation. So it's going to be a combination of those two things together. Now, you're also a printmaker, and there will be some prints in the show. I just got done where I'm working at Blue Mouse Studio with Robin Smith here in, in, in Aptos, just south of Santa Cruz, and um, just having a great time. And yes, there will be uh, two, actually three editions uh, of dry points that um, will be in the show and available for sale through the gallery. 
And so tell us a little bit about the prints. What, how do the prints uh, fit into the uh, uh, Stan Welsh catalog? Well, I think, you know, um, on a practical, in a practical way, the prints are, are more accessible, um, you know, in terms of cost and also just in terms of size and, and the way uh, they can be owned and, and, and uh, accessible to somebody for their home. So, you know, it's for, it's for a person that, um, that wants a piece, but does maybe doesn't have the space for a larger piece. But more than that, um, it was an opportunity. I love to draw. It was an opportunity for me to draw on these plates with these, this dry point etching tip and, um, and to create these, uh, you know, black line drawings, which then led to, colorful backdrops, which then lent, lent, lent themselves to sort of an experimental approach where I'm overlapping these, uh, these drawn images or these etched images. And then I'm sort of misregistering them slightly and creating these really wonderful sort of uh, misregistered, sort of slightly blurry, but drawings of figures carrying these burdens or these loads on their back. So it's really it's really right along in the in the spirit of the rest of the show. It's a complement to the show. And it's a it's a way for me to both have drawings and these prints in the show and also have these things be a little bit more accessible to people. Well, um, you mentioned that you love to draw was where did you study originally and was drawing the first thing that brought you into the art world or was it sculpture? It was ceramics. Um, it was sculpture. I, I fell in love with ceramics uh, by by learning to throw in high school. Mm. And literally uh, in 1967, 68, I started doing ceramics and I uh, never stopped. Um, and, and that ceramic process led me to Kansas City Art Institute, where I did my undergraduate work. And um, a friend of mine was doing a lot of drawing on his ceramic sculpture. And, and I started uh, sort of being influenced by that. I've never really learned to draw formally, um, but I really love making marks on paper. And in my own sort of clumsy way, I'm able to express myself. And in, in the sense of these prints, it's all figurative. Well, it's not very clumsy. But so when you were going to Kansas City, they didn't require you to take drawing classes or things like that to get a degree? Uh, they did, but I've had a little problem throughout my uh, th- throughout my educational processes. I pretty much do what I want to do, and <laughs> it landed me in a lot of trouble. So I've never done a lot of the, and, and in a way, I sort of wish I had, but um, instead, I was influenced by folk art and self-taught artists, and that's what I looked to, people who didn't need to have you know, uh, formal drawing skills, people who just made marks and, and expressed their feelings. And that's where the kind of the idea of this clumsiness comes into this idea of folk quality to my work, because I don't have the, the drawing skills, but I love drawing and I do it anyway. And they come out, uh, you know, well, well enough for me. And did you go to graduate school as well? Went to graduate school at Alfred University in New York. Uh, and that was a ceramic uh, program. And uh, so I got my MFA at Alfred then moved back to the West Coast. I grew up down in Claremont, California, uh, about 30 miles east of L.A. So um, went from Claremont to Kansas City to Berkeley, where I met Pete Volkus and worked with a group of artists there, and then back to New York to Alfred University, and then uh, eventually back to Berkeley, got the job at San Jose State University, and then that's where I met uh, uh, I met Robin Smith and uh, had a great program there. She was in the graduate program. And uh, I have been uh, living in Santa Cruz for the last, like you said, 20. It's actually been closer to 30 years. 
Now, when you were teaching graduate students, did you um, did you share with them your uh, idea of just doing the things that you wanted to do, or did you in- encourage them to get a background in drawing and all the other uh, options that an art student has? I tried to create an environment where I facilitated anything that they might need and encourage them to move in directions that they might not think about. Uh, total freedom and uh, very little. I'm not an academic, although I've been teaching for all those years. I was I've never been uh, as a student or as a teacher academic in the sort of traditional sense of that word. I was a student teaching students and I was trying to create an environment where they could just be free to learn and express themselves and 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 feel uh, the joy of making art. And you can really see that uh, in, in your work. And so let's just remind them that our listeners that you, Stan Welsh, have a new show that is opening March 3rd. How long will it be up? It'll be up for the month. And if I could just add to that, um, I'd like to, you know, just Trevor Jones and Christy Jarvis, uh, have been tremendous to work with at the Minnow Arts uh, Gallery. And the address is 204 Locust Street in Santa Cruz. And it'll be up for that month of March. And March 3rd, is that an opening? Will there be like a... That'll be an opening reception. And then I'll be in the gallery every every Saturday from 1 to 4, uh, meeting and greeting people and making, uh, you know, appointments with people to view the, to view the show. Well, that sounds great. I'll be there. And uh, I wish that my radio uh, listeners could see the work the way I can. So tell me where do you have a website? Uh, I know you have an Instagram. Can you tell us those things? Yeah, on Instagram, it's just my name, Stan Welsh. And uh, and then uh, my website is www.stanwelsh.com. Well, Stan Welsh, thanks so much for uh, spending some time with us on From the Bookshelf and good luck with your show. Gary, thank you. That's it for this week's From the Bookshelf. I hope you enjoyed the program and will come back and see us again next time. In the meantime, you can check out our website at fromthebookshelf.com. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You can even get your smart speaker to play From the Bookshelf by saying, Alexa, play Gary Shapiro's From the Bookshelf. And she will. Until next time, for From the Bookshelf, I'm Gary Shapiro. Take care. See you soon.